Good morning. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 14. It's entitled, Warnings from Israel's History. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now all these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except as what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. May God bless his word to our hearts. Well, this morning we're continuing our series called The Rock, and we've been looking at some promises in God's word that we can truly build our life on. In the passage that Pat just read for us, uh, we see an image that was there in the wilderness, the image of, of a rock. And um, uh, Preston spoke about this a bit last week when he talked about rest. And this image comes specifically from Exodus chapter 17, where you see in the wilderness that God miraculously provided for the children of Israel refreshment. And he did it through a rock. Now, that's got to be a little crazy for our minds to get around until we begin to recognize it's God. God can bring refreshment. He, he brought living water. He brought life-giving liquid to the children of Israel from a rock. But it tells us that that rock wasn't just an ordinary stone like I have here that um, many have made fun of me for because I purchased this rock. Um, but that's all right. I can take it. I can take it. I am, I am man enough to say, yes, I did go to Bauhaus and buy a rock. Um, but it was a rock that really was a pre, the theological term would be a, a theophany. It was an appearance of Jesus before the word became flesh, before he was born at Bethlehem. It was God's presence, Jesus Christ, the son with the children of Israel, giving living water. And this image is incredibly important because what God wants us to see is that he wants to see is that when we build our life upon him, he not only gives us a firm foundation upon which every aspect of our life can be built, but he'll bring refreshment even in the midst of the wilderness. And maybe that's where you've been this morning. Maybe you've felt like, I'm just spiritually dry. My prayer for you today is that God will break through And he will bring refreshment into your heart, into your mind, and into your soul of his presence in a great and powerful way. Well, the promise that we're looking at specifically today is a promise that God says he will provide a way for you when you face temptation, when you face the difficulty, the things where your sin nature and my sin nature is drawn to turn away from God towards other things. And so what I've been encouraging you to do all through this series is uh, to take a verse, um, to begin to memorize it, and specifically to to take out your phone and put it in your calendar. 
And so I'm going to invite you to do the same thing today. I want you to open up. If you've got a Bible app in your heart language, I want you to look up 1 Corinthians 10. And, and what I want you to copy down is, is verses 13 and 14, or you can do like I did. I did verses 12, 13, and 14 to kind of set the context. But I want you to go ahead and find that and, and copy it and then put it in your phone as a reminder to come up at least once a day for the next seven days. And I wanted you to ask one more thing today. I want you to think about your own life, your own tendencies towards weakness, your own tendencies towards temptation, and you set a time when it's likely for you to be tempted. Maybe that's when you first go to work because you're having a difficult circumstance or there's a person that's there that just drives you a little bit crazy and, and you're, you're tempted to, to become angry. So you, you need to set the timing there for right before you get to work to be reminded that God's going to provide a way. Maybe it's late at night. Maybe it's when you're by yourself. You pick a time that the, that the Lord will speak to you and you set a reminder for the next seven days. And here's the thing. When you allow God's word to go into your heart, here's what the scripture says. Your word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's God's promise. So if it's what he's promised, let's test it. Let's try it and say, Lord, would you make that true, a reality in my life? So I want you to take that verse. We're going to say it together in just a moment. Um, But the most important thing isn't the sermon that I preach. It's going to be the power of God's word in your heart and life. All right? So please, let me encourage you to do that. Would you stand with me? And let's, let's say this together. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 14. It begins with this warning. Let's say it together. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. That's a promise we need. That's a promise I need. Lord, I ask that you would take the truth of your word, Lord, that you would translate it into into our hearts and into our minds in a way that we can clearly understand exactly what you're speaking to us. And Lord, would you make your word alive within us? Let it bring forth fruit. Let it bring forth victory in our lives, not because of us, but because it is your promise. It is your work. We want to build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ, the solid foundation, and the one who brings refreshment and rest and joy. Thank you in advance, Lord, that you keep your promises. Remind us of them frequently, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The promise that we just read is that God says, no matter what you face, no matter how difficult the trial, the temptation, he will make a way of escape for you. He will enable you to stand and to endure in the midst of trial and temptation. And he promises victory if we go to him and we trust in his promises. That's why it's so important for us to to not just hear about his word on on Sunday, but to make it a regular daily part of our life. Allow it to become more and more of who we are. His promise is he will make a way. Therefore, our response is I will flee from my idols. And we're going to look at that today. It's it's beautiful how, how God in his um, sovereignty wove together the theme of, of the retreat for the ladies um, with the message that I didn't, I didn't you know, just sit there and take notes even though I was there and copy everything that, that Marissa said. I actually wrote this before the retreat. Um, you know, so any similarity is all God. So he gets the credit. Here's the truth, though. Most of us deal very lightly with temptation. We don't like to think about it. We, we kind of avoid it. We kind of brush it away. 
And we need to recognize that it's incredibly dangerous. That's why this verse begins with a warning. If you think you're standing firm, be careful because you might be ready to fall. And the warning is especially for us to be watchful of pride, to recognize, you know, if we begin to think we have it together, you and I are in trouble. Whenever I think I have my act together, I know that God's going to either have to bring me to the quick realization that I really don't, or I'm going to trip myself up and fall and stumble in some way that wounds my own relationship with the Lord, often wounds others, and will cause um, a grief within the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to do that. We want to take heed. Well, in the scriptures, the, the word that is translated temptation in the New Testament, it is pirosamos, and it has a, a, a dual nature to it. It has two parts. First of all, it's an enticement from the enemy or from our own desire to sin, to do something that, that God has said, this is wrong, this is harmful for you. And secondly, the second dimension of it is that it is a test of love that reflects our new identity in Christ. Every temptation is a test. That's why there's oftentimes some overlap when we see it revealed in the scripture. They come together. And by it being a test, it is an opportunity to show God that you love him, that you're faithful. Um, Within every temptation, there is some form of a test to see if we will live like who we are in Christ, to live out the new identity he has given us. And every trial contains temptations that the enemy and our own self-serving flesh seeks um, to take control of us and rob us from becoming all that God intends for us and enjoying intimacy with him. But God promises us that when we turn to him, In times of temptation, in times of trial, he will provide a way, a way out. Now, to to really understand this, we need to see that the opposite of temptation is trusting. That's really what it comes down to, and declaring our trust. Let me explain it to you this way, and it may sound a little little strange, but, but I hope it'll make sense. Every time that I do not look at a woman other than my wife, with desire in my heart, I'm proving my love for my wife every single time. Every time I respond humbly to an offense rather than respond in pride, I prove my trust in the promise that God will raise me up and be my defense. You see, every time we choose to do what is honoring to the Lord, we declare our faith in an active way that brings him pleasure and draws us closer into deeper intimacy. Just like every time that I don't look at a a woman, uh, another woman, in a way where there's desire in my heart, it actually draws me closer in my love and my intimacy and my union with my wife. And you could apply that to any area of our life. Any time that we resist temptation and we trust in what God has told us to do, there is victory. So here's the thing. We need to, to a certain degree, stop thinking of temptation only in the negative and start thinking of this is an opportunity for great victory, for me to grow closer to the Lord, to grow closer to others, to declare what we sang about earlier, that he is victorious. His resurrection proved it. The opposite of yielding to temptation is trusting the faithfulness of God. Now, I want you to notice in this passage that we we read together um, that you have a central theme of idolatry. In verse 7, it says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, referring back to the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And in verse 14, after the promise, he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. Idolatry um, is something we have a tendency to think of that just occurred in the Old Testament or maybe occurs in certain places on, on the earth where they literally have statues that people bow down to. 
But idolatry is a universal human condition because it is a condition of the heart. So our idols may not um, look like an, a, a, a man with an elephant head um, that like you might see in Nepal or in India, Ganesh. It may not look like that. But you and I struggle with idols. And it's important if we're to have victory over temptation to recognize that what we are wrestling with is indeed idolatry. So we're going to explore a little bit of what that means because in the scripture, that's given as the central command. When you think about um, what we call the Ten Commandments, God is emphasizing that we are to have no other gods before him and that anything else, all the rest of those commandments are evidence of idolatry in our heart. That's, That's really what they are. That's why in Deuteronomy, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, here's one of the things you need to to recognize. When I resist temptation, when I resist my idols, the things that I'm drawn to and seek to obey the Lord, it blesses my children and my grandchildren and the lives of others. It's not just about me being faithful. It's about providing a foundation upon which God is able to flow forth his blessing because of obedience into the lives of others. And you or I are also benefactors of the faithfulness of others. So this is an incredibly important issue in the heart of God, and it should be important to us. Now, in the New Testament, we get a fuller view of what this idolatry really looked like. One of the passages that really um, pinpoints exactly what idolatry is, is Colossians 3. Um, And I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles or, or on your phone, would you turn there? We'll also put it on the screen. Colossians 3, beginning of verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, when you read that in the original language, you discover that all of those, all six of those are actually idols. Covetousness, when we desire something that God has given to someone else, that's idolatry. Sexual impurity or immorality, those are idols that we battle. Now, none of those things necessarily have a statue like we might see in, in, or imagine from the Old Testament. But what we see is the desires of the heart were often manifest in the worship of idols, especially in the Old Testament. Sexual immorality accompanied temple worship amongst false gods in every culture. You read about the Asheroth poles and, and the, the worship of Baal in the Old Testament, and it was all about or it was all connected to immorality. Today, we have the idol of pornography, and it is pervasive in our midst. And we need to see that that's what it is. It is not a weakness. Is not even a glorification or a twisting of this beautiful gift that God gave us in sex. It is actually an idol. And when we recognize that that is an idol, then we're able to rightfully wage battle against it in our own hearts and minds. When you see that that's truly what it is. Idolatry causes us to bow down and to serve something else in God's place. I put some, some questions, some, some diagnostic questions for you and I to help identify idols in our own heart because we're all different. We all have different weaknesses, things that we're drawn to. And so what tempts you may not tempt me and what tempts me may be an easy thing for you. But think about these questions. What kinds of things leave you the most disappointed? 
You need to think about the answer there because if you're, if you're greatly disappointed, if you're expecting fulfillment, if you're expecting significance out of something and, you, and it didn't happen and you're left disappointed, it may indicate that there's an area in your heart or in your thinking of idols, of an idolatry. What are you willing to sacrifice time and money for? It could be. It may be something very good. And here's a truth. A good thing can become a God thing when we allow it to take priority over God himself in our life. A good thing can become a God thing when we allow it to take priority over God himself in our life. So they're not all necessarily bad things. Another question. What is it you worry about the most? Tough question. Sorry to make you uncomfortable, but I do it because I want you to have victory, because God wants you to have victory so you find your true rest, as as Preston preached last week, in Christ alone. And when you rest in him, in his love, it casts out all fear. So worry can reveal Idols. A similar question. When you're hurting, when you're frustrated, where do you turn for comfort? Do you turn to food? Sorry, I'm, I'm really stepping on toes, aren't I? I'm sorry. Well, look at the next question. What makes you mad? <laughs> okay, that preacher on Sunday. Just get rid of him. <laughs> These are, these are, I'm not asking you to answer any of these out loud. So this is just to help us, okay? I need to ask these questions. <coughs> Excuse me. Another one, what do you dream about? Whose encouragement means the most to you? Because you see, someone else can be an idol. Another person can be an idol in your life. Based upon how you answer these questions, you may begin to see some patterns that indicate an idol or a God in your life that is fighting with the Lord for your worship, for your service, for control, or for comfort. St. Augustine put it this way. um, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. It's an interesting quote. When we take something that is common that God gave to us as as something to be used and we begin to worship it, it becomes an idol. When we give ourselves for it. By nature, we all have this tendency towards idolatry. And what are we told to do? Well, the passage I read in Colossians says that we're to put it to death so that we can have victory, so that we can put on Christ. The passage goes on to tell us. So what exactly is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can truly give. Our work can be an idol. Our success, our reputation, any of those things which are good things when they're out of balance and when they're ahead of God in the priorities of our heart, they can become idols. Here's maybe a way to look at it. An idol is anything that you look at and say deep within you, if I had that, then I would feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure. What are the things in your own heart that if you're dead honest before the Lord, you'd say, I've been seeking that more than I've been seeking you. God wants to set you free so that he can fill you with his presence, with his joy. All right. Well, what's the promise? Let's let's look at this again. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. So if you think you are standing firm, Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. 
He is staking his reputation on this promise. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. When Paul writes this, he's not writing it judging others. He says, my dear friends, he is doing it with with the passion of a parent who loves those um, that have been placed under his care. And he says, I want you to have joy. I want you to have victory. And you'll never find it if you keep chasing your idols. God is faithful and he will provide a way. He sees everything. Proverbs 5.21 tells us that a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. Proverbs 15.3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and on the good. What that simply means is whatever you're facing, God already sees it and he sees what's ahead. You can trust him, but we have to choose to trust him in the midst of that. So God is with you and he is watching over you and he is for you. He is faithful. So how do we begin to look for his provision and stand firm in the midst of of temptation and flee from our idols? Well, here's how God does it. He provides, he promises to provide deliverance to you and I in temptation. And he can do that in a variety of ways. Number one, He may provide an an immediate escape route for you to take. And we need to understand there are times in our lives when that is the only action we can take. We need to run from temptation. We need to flee, especially from those things that appeal to our flesh. When you read in the story of, of Joseph, when Potiphar's wife was pursuing him, um, was seeking to seduce him. He did exactly what the scripture tells us to do. He fled from idolatry. He fled from the temptation of what was likely a very beautiful and powerful woman who was seeking his destruction. He ran from it. And you and I need to look and say, Lord, show me if I need to run. If in this circumstance that I'm facing, that I need to find your escape route and run. It is not weakness. It is the greatest strength. In fact, we we see that played out in the life of Joseph. His fleeing from that moment. I mean, think about it. From a human standpoint, he had the opportunity not only for the, the pleasure that it would have been in the enticement that Potiphar's wife was presenting, but it would have been an opportunity for power, for influence. He would have had an in. It would have appealed to his flesh, but he chose instead to trust God, knowing he'd already been in prison and that the consequences of turning away from that temptation very well could have put him back in prison, which is exactly what happened. He chose to trust God more than the temptation. That's why it says here, flee from idolatry. In the first century, sexual immorality is directly linked with idol worship. The scripture also tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Lusting after someone else is coveting them for ourselves. Um. And and again, that's why I mentioned pornography is such a powerful thing. Did you know that the Czech Republic is the number two producer of pornography in the world behind only California in the United States? It is everywhere. And we need to flee from it because it will destroy a life, a family, a reputation, a church. We need to flee from it and recognize that it's an idol. So if you're being tempted physically, if your flesh is being tempted by an appetite, we need to take the door and run. If you debate it, 
Chances are you will fall. We need to simply act and run. Sometimes that's what God will do. He'll provide that immediate exit. Other times in trials and temptations, God may give you wisdom, uh, the wisdom that you need to act decisively and honorably. He is fully powerful to do that. That's another way he provides an escape. Thirdly, God may strengthen you to stand strong against the trial or the temptation. Fourthly, and this is so important, he may send someone else to stand with you. We need each other. God will make a way for you. And we need to know that we're not alone. We need to be vulnerable enough, authentic enough to share with those we we trust our struggles, our areas where we are weak because we need one another. Every one of us is weak in and of ourselves. And, And I've mentioned significantly several times about pornography One of the things I'm really excited about is um, we now have uh, Samson Society, which is a a group uh, for men that meets every Monday night at the Bridge Center from 5.30 to 6.30. Excuse me. And it's designed to help men stay accountable to the things that they look at, to where they allow their hearts to be placed. And and I want to encourage you men. Man, this is a way to, to step into great victory. And if you want more information about that, you can find some information on the website. You're welcome to email me. I'll get you connected. Um, We need one another. We need to stand together. In all these, we need to look for how how we can trust God in the midst of trial and temptation. We need to look for the way out that he has and take it because he will provide. He has promised. Well, the second question we need to look at briefly is, why does God allow us to be tempted? And I I think it's important to recognize that God can use temptations to develop a more godly character in your life. First Peter puts it this way, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold though, um, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we stand firm against trial and temptation, we um, declare worship to God. Faithfulness is a beautiful sounding music to the Lord, even more beautiful then perhaps the songs that we sing and the words that we say is the faithfulness that we live. That brings him joy and pleasure and worship. Secondly, God can use temptations to test the level of our maturity and obedience. He can use temptations to provide examples to others also about how they can overcome obstacles, how they can find victory. But we have to have the conversations that are authentic with one another, that are vulnerable with each other. And thirdly, every temptation is also a test of love. It is an opportunity to stand on the faithfulness of God. And here's what I want you to, uh, I hope you'll come away with today. We need to recognize that temptation is an illusion. It is, it is sleight of hand. Sin is real and evil is real, but temptation itself is an illusion. Here's what I mean by that. It means it promises something it can never, ever deliver. Sin cannot give you what you're seeking. It may give a moment of pleasure, but it will never bring satisfaction. It is an illusion that you face. Just like this, not a cool illusion, you know, I mean, this poor guy with a hole in his hand, um, but it's just an illusion. It's the way it's been painted. That's what temptation is for you and I. It's an illusion that has no substance that could ever satisfy our soul. This is why God speaks against the idols in our life 
It's because as a loving father, he wants what is best for you. And he knows that you, when you're pursuing an illusion, you will be left empty. But God, who loves you more than you could ever imagine, wants you to be filled. And so that's why he's encouraging us to flee from our idols. We need to understand that lust is the illusion of love. It has no satisfying substance because there is no real connection or intimacy. It is only driven driven by selfishness. Greed is an illusion. It has an insatiable appetite. You will never, ever, ever have enough. Pride is an illusion. Life is not about you. It's not certainly not about me. But when we pursue a life of self-focus, it will end in despair. And it usually, hear this, ends in incredible loneliness. Pride is an illusion. And we have an enemy that is seeking to rob your life, your soul of life. We need to recognize that sin is an enemy seeking to destroy us. How does it work in our life? Well, the Bible describes three targets of temptation um, that we face. In 1 John 2, 15, it says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride in possessions or the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever, has real substance. So what, what um, John is describing here is, is three different dimensions of temptation that we face. The first one is the passion of our appetites, the selfish hungers of our flesh. And that would include things like lust, obsession over food, entertainment, laziness, drug and alcohol abuse, um, they can all be misused appetites that can become idols in our life. In and of themselves, they may be good things. They may be gifts that God has given us. But when they take God's rightful place in the priority of our heart, they become idols. And Satan often uses these appetites to try to draw, try and draw us away from trusting God's provision and, and his work and control and plan for our life. The second one is the pretense of status. This is the wants of our eyes. Uh, and they're far more subtle than, than just the appetites of our flesh. Our desire for success and recognition can be twisted into a sin that leads to covetousness, greed, envy, jealousy, lying, uh, <laughs> that too, I suppose, lying, um, gossip, and others. And Satan will use these to draw us away from trusting God's plan for our life. We'll begin to compare ourselves to others and what they have and what he has given to them. God didn't make you them. He chose you to be you, and his plan for you is incredibly good. The third one is the power of pride, the selfish pursuit of me in God's rightful place. Power and pride screams, what about me? It raises up within us when we're offended. You can't do that to me. Don't you know who I am, and who are you anyway to say that about? That's a reflection of pride taking control in our life. And we need to be watchful because the enemy is seeking to destroy us. Friends, I want to encourage you to make this adjustment in your thinking. No longer see sin as weakness. Sin is your enemy. It is the very enemy of your soul. When we view sin and temptation as weakness, we have a tendency to make allowances for it, just as we would at other true weaknesses. But when we see sin as an invader seeking to take control from our life, 
seeking to rob us of our relationship with God, rob us of our relationship with one another, and rob us of the joy that God wants to give us, when we see sin as an intruder that's breaking in to the house of our soul, then our response is radically different. You don't make allowances for an intruder coming into your home who breaks in to steal. You drive them out. And, you, and when, if you need help, you're willingly able to call your neighbor and say, someone is trying to break into my house. I need help. Would you stand with me? That's how we are to approach sin and temptation. Lust is our enemy, not a weakness. Covetousness is our enemy. It is not a weakness. Slander and gossip is your enemy. It is not a weakness. It is not a tendency. It is something that the enemy seeks to use to cause division. Pride is our enemy. Now, what is great news is is that Jesus defeated all three areas of temptation, and we see it in Matthew chapter 4 in how he dealt with temptation. And so very quickly, we're going to look at that because Jesus really does understand what you're going through. The scripture tells us in Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, with our struggles, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He was victorious over every single one. Therefore, when he says, I will provide a way for you, it's because he knows the best way to rescue you and me in the midst of temptation because he's already been there. And he was absolutely victorious. Jesus was tempted in all three of these areas. The passions of the appetites, we see that in the first temptation in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Uh, Jesus clearly was physically, uh, I mean, famished. He was incredibly hungry. Um, He experienced hunger to the point of starvation. The desire of his flesh could not have been more intense. When it says that Jesus was tempted in every way, this is what it means. He faced the most powerful of temptation, far greater than anything you and I will ever face. He was hungry beyond imagination. But notice something. Satan does not offer Jesus bread because he couldn't. He offers the illusion of bread. He challenges Jesus to make the stones into bread because he couldn't do it. Satan couldn't do that. All he could do was offer up the illusion and try to entice Jesus' appetite. He can't deliver um, sustenance and substance any more than than the rocks that were there could have eased Jesus' hunger if he would have bit into it. And what did Jesus do? He answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus uses scripture to shatter the illusion of temptation. And Um, if we had time, I'd unpack because he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight. And we'll we'll look at that in a couple weeks because it's incredibly rich, um, what he answers to him. But just know he used the scripture effectively to deal with that temptation. Secondly, the pretense of status, the once of the eyes. We see that in verse five. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan bids Jesus to jump from the highest point of the temple and to let God protect him. Jesus responds once again, is from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. 
again, a place where they complained about God's provision and wanted to go back to Egypt. That's what happened in that passage. Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to make a shortcut, to do things in his own strength and in his own timing rather than in God's, to display his own power, not God the Father's. The idea here is that if Jesus would have done what he was being tempted to do, it would have been a sign that no one could have denied the miracle of. He would have had instant celebrity status. All at once, he would have won Checks Got Talent, American Idol, The X Factor, Dancing with the Stars, and every other reality show that we, we experience within our culture. He would have been declared the victor of all of them. He would have had instant fame. But he would have went against the thing that defined him most, which was doing the will of the Father. It wasn't God's plan. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan was tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. And I believe that perhaps is the greatest temptation we as followers of Christ face, a crossless Christianity. You see, the enemy tempts you and I to not deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. He wants to distract us into our own plans, our own agenda, our own timing, rather than God the Father's. But Jesus willingly, knowing that it would mean incredible suffering, chose the cross. The third temptation he faced was the power of pride, the selfish pursuit of me in God's rightful place. And here's, here's how it looked in, in Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Once he had victory over the temptation, God rushed in and provided exactly what he needed physically, emotionally, spiritually. He provided and ministered to all um, that Jesus was in his flesh all that he needed, and he does the same for you and I. I've told you this often because it's become something I have to remind myself of, and it's simply this, don't sin too soon. Too often, we miss out on what God has for us because we yield to temptation. He has beautiful things for you. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Wait for God. Satan was doing his best to try to get Jesus to get the very thing that had been promised to him in the scripture, all the nations of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He tempted him with the very thing he came to earth to do, to bring them all together, but in his own power and might and to avoid the cross, to not take upon himself our sin. And how disastrous that would have been had he yielded to temptation. But he was absolutely victorious. How did he do that? Well, first of all, Jesus stood on his identity with the Father. He recognized that he is the Son. The beautiful thing that, that occurred right before the temptation was the baptism of Jesus. And here's what it said. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was able to resist temptation because he remembered who he was in relation to God the Father. He knew his identity, and that's what we need as well. Your identity in Christ is what will give you the strength, the spiritual strength, to be able to stand firm against temptation and trial. Secondly, he was strengthened by the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, he was filled with the Holy Spirit's presence. 
If you've trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are not alone. And you need to remember that. God is with you. And finally, Jesus shattered the illusion of temptation with the sword of the word of God. That's what we need to do as well. Against the temptations of appetite, Jesus remembered the way of God's faithfulness and he quoted from the scripture. Against temptations of status, Jesus waited for God's timing and he spoke forth the scripture. Against temptations of pride, Jesus worshiped the Father and again spoke forth the truth of the scripture that we shall worship no other God except God the Father. We are to claim God's promise that he will make a way. Therefore, I will flee from temptation and I will stand in my identity in Christ. I will trust God and not fall for the illusion of temptation. I will remember that God is faithful and he will provide. I will wait for his timing and I'll worship God alone. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to take your promise that you will provide a way out and apply it to our lives with the very next temptation that we face? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak into the minds of each and every person here when they feel either the attack of the enemy or the desires of their own old nature. Would you speak forth this truth into their mind and remind them that you are with them and you have promised to make a way out for them? And even more, you have something beautiful for them, worth far more than any temptation, any illusion that we are drawn towards is the substance of who you are. Lord, would you let that truth resonate within our hearts and minds? Would you set people free today for your name's sake, Jesus, for your honor and glory and for our good? Well, would you speak into each and every heart here? Well, wherever they are, wherever they're wrestling with, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Those that do not yet know you, Lord, would you give them the courage to simply call upon your name and say, Jesus, would you save me? For those who are wrestling with temptation, would you give them the the courage and the faith to pray as you taught us in your Lord's prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and from the evil one. Remind them that you are with them right now. Give victory. And Lord, I pray that over this next week, we will see evidence of your deliverance and of your victory because we're trusting in your word. Thank you in advance for what you're going to do because, Lord, you are faithful and you are the one we trust. You rose from the dead to give us life and to prove your victory. We pray all these things in praise to your name, Jesus. Amen.